Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guests today, Professors Matt Romanelli and Allison Smith. Matt is at Weber State University, correct, in in Utah. And Allison uh, Smith is a professor at the University of Toronto in Canada. They are the co-editors and co-authors, along with Tricia Starks of the University of Arkansas, of the just published The Life Cycle of Russian Things, from Fish Guts to Fabergé, 1600 to the present. It's just out from Bloomsbury. Matt and Allison, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. So this this was a, a fascinating book to read on a number of everyday objects, some not everyday now, but everyday objects in the past, but how they came into significant uh, into being, their journeys through time, and their, importantly, their significance uh, to the local populations as they evolve through time. Material culture is a kind of an important academic field. It may not be very popularly well-known. Can you guys just provide an overview of this uh, approach to everyday objects, material culture, and and how you came about to working in that field? Uh, It's a really important question. I think that we all have have talked about. Uh, For me, um, what I always hope to be able to convey in my work and for my students is to get them to understand how the past is different than the present. And it's always been really effective when I teach to be able to take an object and talk about what it means and what it meant then and what they might think about it. Um, And I've become increasingly fascinated by taking um, or talking about materials that don't get used very commonly in the modern day and talking about how important they are. Um, And honestly, that's been uh, off and on in my work for 15 years now. I'm really fascinated by the ways that there was a a life of things in the past that we really haven't captured in the modern day. And Allison, did you, did you approach it in a similar kind of, did you end up doing it in the same way? I think so. You know, my, uh, my first book um, was on food in Russian history, uh, which isn't a thing in the way that we always think about it always, but there are so many things that go along with the process of making food and, and producing food in the fields and all of these things. Uh, so I think I've always been very interested in that sort of material culture side of, of history. Those are the sorts of stories and the sorts of topics that have always been something that interested me. And even though I've done lots of things that weren't about the material world, there's something that I think always just pulls me back into it. Uh, so when the idea to do an edited volume on this came up, I thought, well, there are all of these things that I keep taking notes on in the archives, and I never quite know what I'm going to do with them. So this was my chance to write about things like <laughs> like limestone, which who knew I would ever actually find a place for a paper on limestone, despite the fact that I kept taking lots of notes on limestone because it kept showing up. How did you find 15 other like-minded people? Uh, it, it's been over time, I think. Uh, it's a little bit of a network of people willing to talk about these issues. Uh, that's what I, in, in thinking about coming and talk to you today, I was trying to remember. And honestly, I think Claire Griffin was really instrumental, who's in this volume writing about uh, apothecary wares, stuff we use in the pharmacy. Um, but she invited Audrey Yoder, who wrote about the samovar, 
and myself do a conference in the UK um, on material culture. And at the time I was thinking, there's this four day conference on material culture. Why is there only three people talking about Russia? It's an enormous empire. It's a lot of stuff. Um, and then the following year, Allison and I did a panel together on oddity commodities when she talked about limestone. And I was actually talking about mammoth bones at the time. I got interested in animal materials. Um, and it sort of came together like as a, as a group of people that we were working with. Um, and uh, we did put out a call for people to, to send submissions, but it turns out most of the people that were involved are people that we were familiar with um, uh, and sort of became this community. Uh, and I think that's really a helpful way. Uh, it was really productive for us to have a conversation together um, because there's some familiarity amongst ourselves, uh, but it was also really exciting uh, to be hearing about new work uh, from some scholars we weren't as familiar with. Because you've chosen a variety of people and uh, topics all over time and space of Russia, you did organize it into a couple silos to help the readers understand what's coming up. Can you discuss that? Because the, the material is so varied that it, it really does need a bit of a, a guide. And you did provide that guide into how you organize that. And then we can get into the chapters. Yeah, I think it was sort of a combination of the results of this workshop. I think doing, the, doing this volume the way we did it, starting with a workshop, actually taking time at the end of the workshop to brainstorm a whole series of different themes that we noticed coming through. Like we hadn't really organized things in any particular order for the workshop. It was simply, you know, getting the, the papers out there. Uh, but then as Matt and Trish and I sort of talked through the papers and started slotting them into a way of understanding, um, just coming up with some sort of sense, this idea of the life cycle, the idea of the creation of objects, the destruction of objects, the preservation of op objects uh, seemed to be one of the things that had really come through that really neatly divided our papers in a way that also didn't mean that we had like all of the things on, on the earliest times to the all of the things in the Soviet era at the end that sort of mixed these issues all up as we went. Um, so it really came very organically, I think, out of the discussions we had at that workshop. Uh, it was, you know, tricky. We had a lot of conversations about, well, which section should come first and all of these sorts of things. But in the end, it was actually remarkably, I have to say, like working with Matt and Trish was just a pleasure because everything seemed to slot into place uh, with remarkably little conflict. It was it was great. <laughs> Well, let's let's dive in and go into a couple of the the categories. The first one is transforming things, and there there's a, a an interesting chapter again of, of apothecary ware from Claire Griffin. But your your chapter, Allison, on again lime and limestone and building materials and its its place in in, in the culture, uh, I thought was was you know something I would not normally encounter. Most of us would not normally encounter. It was fascinating. Can you kind of provide an overview of that uh, of that work that you did? Sure. Absolutely. So as I said, this is something that very much came to me from work in the archives. So I've been doing work on the Palace of Gatchina and its surrounding region. And I just happened to notice that there were sort of frequent mentions of limestone. Uh, uh, they're not called mines. I'm, uh, quarries, excuse me, that's the word, quarries uh, around the estate. Um, there were, in some records, people regularly coming in to ask for or lime for various you know reasons around the, around the palace, and this was what I, you know again it was a thing I noticed but wasn't quite sure what to do with. Uh, and the first sort of iteration of this actually came not from our workshop but from this panel on oddity commodities uh, because Matt and I were talking about the sorts of things we came across that we weren't quite sure sort of what to do with but were really interesting. Uh, so 
I started with these sources I saw that just showed lime and limestone as a major issue uh, in this particular place at this particular time. And it gave me the chance to sort of just read a huge amount more about sort of the, all of the different ways that lime and limestone were used to finally sort of understand about the process of make burning limestone to make lime um, and all of the ways that it really played such a central role in the reconstruction of the area around St. Petersburg in the 18th century. Uh, this is an area that was, you know, St. Petersburg is a funny imperial city because it is a capital that is in a periphery. You know, the area around it is a, is, was newly annexed lands on the periphery of the, heart, the, the classic heartland of, of Russia. Uh, and St. Petersburg is this new modern city that's built in all of these ways and although I, you know, of course, you know that stone goes into the building of this, that's something I had always known, but really digging in, and I didn't mean to say digging in when I'm talking about uh, quarrying for stone, uh, you know, into this question just brought up so many ways that it played such a central role in the 18th century. Um, so, you know, the, the, the paper looks both at um, the things that I found in the archives, lots of things about the ways that lime and limestone show up in the laws of the time for everything from producing it to using it. Um, and just really tries to think sort of about all of the ways that sort of thinking about uh, the stone in the buildings, where it comes from, how it's made. I, to me, it really enriches our understanding of the place that, you know, some of those of us who go regularly to Russia, just, you know, the streets we walk down all the time. Another article in, in that section uh, by Anne uh, Kamaromi it was also revelatory to, uh, I think, those of us who are familiar with Russian Soviet history, but those who are not, and to a new take on on Samizdat. Uh, I would actually love to talk about that because it was one of the most fascinating um, projects to see come together. Uh, she's actually worked a lot on Samizdat material in her career, um, and she was actually excited just to be able to talk for once, not about what it said necessarily, but how it was created as a as a as a piece of material. Um, and the process was incredibly interesting because uh, I still remember when she had the ability to show us, you know, a number of images, which we don't have the space for in the book, just to think about, you know, people are stealing pieces of paper from bureaucracy, bureaucratic notes, messages to one another, and then refashioning them and reshaping them. And then the ultimate shape and physicality of it is actually part of the representation, about a part of what it means. Um, and so the fact that these materials are still preserved is really amazing because they were, it was a group of people taking material that was being discarded by the country and then refashioning it into something unique and special and then protecting that from government censors. It was really a fascinating project to think about how transformation works in terms of material culture. So your first category is transforming things. Second category is making things. And I wouldn't have, wouldn't have guessed Matt, your contribution in a million years. I couldn't have come up with that. Fish guts or gills, I guess, had a role in the manufacture of wine. I wouldn't have guessed that. Tell us that story. Technically, it's the swim bladder is the most important part of the fish. Uh, and it's, it's created in this, it's used to make a product known as isinglass, uh, which in the early modern world through the 19th century was incredibly important. Um, uh, people, when they caught beluga, would cut the fish apart. The meat was usually discarded because it was the least valuable piece of the fish. Uh, if there was caviar inside, that was taken out and preserved. But then the rest of what was inside all had value. Uh, the swim bladder was the most important part because it was this specialty product known as isoglass. 
the rest of it could be rendered and turned into glue. Uh, and Russia's major source of glue came from fish, not from cattle as it did in other parts of the world. And glue is an important product for the way that people live their lives uh, in general. But Isinglass was sort of fascinating to me because I, I it would pop up in the records uh, and I've done a lot of work with trade records in general. Um, and uh, my previous book had been about the British-Russia trade and Isinglass was always on the list of things they were buying. And I could not, I never really had a second to think about where is this product coming from and why is it important? Um, and these swim bladders, once they're dried, can be added to uh, a casket. Um, it's used by brewers uh, making beer and also by vintners um, as a way of straining out the particulate matter that comes from the brewing process to make a clearer product. Um, and uh, so the, the best uh, quality Isinglass in Europe comes from the Volga River and from the Caspian Sea. Uh, it came from Russia. It had to be fished uh, in those regions, packaged, prepared, shipped across Russia, exported in the 17th century from Arkhangelsk, the northern port, uh, in St. Petersburg in the 18th century, and ends up all across Europe. Um, it's overwhelmingly endorsed in Britain and France. And there's no doubt the best quality product for Isinglass comes from Russia. Um, and I think when you just hear about it, the idea that you take fish guts literally and use it to clarify wine and beer without altering the flavor, I still think is a little confusing. Um, the embarrassing thing when I started this project was really that I had written a book on trade and I just didn't pay attention to the fact that about the fifth most valuable export from Russia throughout the entire 18th century is Isinglass. Uh, and it's a product we don't see in the 19th century being used in the same way. So there's this huge industry around uh, gathering the material, preparing it for the market, and then shipping it out, uh, high value, high volume, and it vanishes when the 19th century arrives. Um, and so that lost trade is so fascinating to me. I, in the 19th century, um, there's a chemical process where you can actually basically um, take any fish, any part of the fish, and turn it into a similar substance to Russian-produced isinglass by basically altering the substance with some uh, through the power of chemistry. Uh, by the end of the 19th century and certainly the 20th century, there's uh, synthetic replacements that are being used for filters, which is what it really is being used for. Um, and that's uh, for a long time. The only time I'd ever seen a reference to Isinglass was in, you know, British literature from the 19th century where they talked about it's time to pour the port. You should break out the Isinglass. And I never really thought about what that actually meant in terms of a product, much less that it came from the Caspian. And, and is the word... Isinglass still in in usage as a word for a filter, or is it is the word Isinglass itself fading into obscurity? Save for this important article, I, <laughs> Isinglass is specifically uh, fish bladders. Um, it it means very specifically that. So in the modern day, we talk about if I, if you saw someone, you can still go to the grocery store, at least in some parts of Europe, and buy Isinglass because sometimes people will use it to thicken soups on occasion, um, but uh, it's not used in any way as in the, in the wine production or brewing industry any longer. Third section, touching things, the kind of what I think many of our audience would consider very traditional material culture objects that you can see in understanding their significance in time and place. I, I did not know the history of samovars, uh, that they kind of a foreign import that Russia made their own and they, they, disappeared from the foreign part and have remained a Russian symbol rather than a the foreign symbol. Did not know that. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, Audrey's piece is a great one. You know, this is uh, uh, her work on the samovar and on tea culture, I think is is really fascinating. So she does a couple of things in the chapter. She both traces sort of the evolution of 
something that is a tea, basically the samovar from a tea urn, um, uh, an imported an imported tea urn, essentially, the sort of method of heating water uh, that was something that was more common in Western Europe, especially in Britain, uh, in the earlier parts of the 18th century. Um, and what Audra does is she sort of links the persistence of the samovar uh, where it faded away in Britain, basically to like another element of of material culture, which is the Russian stove, uh, that the Russian stove and the specific ways that it produced heat um, in comparison to the kinds of stove tops that became common in Western Europe uh, was one of the reasons that the samovar was a really successful and one of the most practical ways of, of, of heating water for tea. Um, and so I just think it's a lovely piece that sort of brings in a couple of different elements of Russian culture that are really ubiquitous, especially when you look at older sources. Um, the, the, the classic old Russian stove is, of course, not everywhere today. Um, although I did actually see one in a, in a, in a peasant village um, outside Moscow. Well, not a peasant village, but a village outside Moscow about 15 years ago. And I have a picture of me next to this giant hulking thing. It's amazing. Uh, but sort of just thinking about the ways that these different elements of how the household was you know, heated also has this effect on what becomes this object of beauty, the samovar. It's a wonderful piece. I agree. And so it, it, what's interesting for the, might be for the readers is that the development of what we would call a, a stove top in England mm-hmm allows the subsequent development of tea kettles of, of the lack of development of a stove top in uh, Russian uh, parallel at the Russian time meant that the heating of water was better done off or outside of the, the main uh, heating uh, unit in the house. Uh, And so a self-contained heating unit, a samovar uh, lasted much longer and then became a, a, a cultural artifact as a result of, of these different approaches to heating heating the house. Exactly. The the Russian stove is great for heating a house or for doing things that require like a long, slow braise or bake or something like that, but not so much the hot flame that would produce, that would boil water quickly. The next chapter, uh, Tricia Starks, who is the world's leading expert on tobacco consumption in, in Russia and the Soviet Union, first book on smoking in, in Russia, second book on its way out. I don't know if it's done yet on uh, smoking in, in the Soviet Union, and a lovely little chapter on Fabergé uh, tobacco cases, cigarette cases. One question I would have asked Tricia if she's on this, how did these cases make it to the McFerrin Museum in Houston, Texas? Do either of you happen to know that? I, uh, I know a little, um, just because uh, that particular collection is a collector of Fabergé items. Um, and so they had this collection of Fabergé um, cigarette cases. And in Trisha's work on tobacco, she had contacted them to go and see the material they had. And one of the things that sparked the interest in this article is they have the case that supposedly was on Nicholas II when he was assassinated by the Bolsheviks. Uh, of which there's a picture that starts the chapter. And that's really was the spark for particularly trying to capture this moment what was it about the cigarette case that was so important that it's one of the last pieces uh, that we had from him? Um, and then mysteriously, it ends up in a museum in Texas. But uh, that's where that really began as a project. From that, we go to the T-34 and what the tank meant to those who were around it and, and the history of that. Do you want to provide some of the highlights from that chapter? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that we really loved about it was the degree to which, and this was in the original version, uh, really emphasized the sensory experience of being in the tank, the sort of experiences of the men who rode in the tanks, but didn't just ride in them, they made their homes in them, the ways that it became, they became almost personalized uh, through their interactions with people. Uh, so those were some of the things that came out again in the original draft of the paper. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that one of the sections was this one on uh, on the senses. Uh, so Trish's uh, article on the cigarette things is on the cigarette things. The cigarette cases is all about touching them and opening them and the ways that those sensory things are part of the smoking. The samovar is part of the ritual and the and the warmth and all of these other things. And the tank here is this thing that, you know, everything from the sense of smell, um, you get a sense of both the smell of the people inside it and the rubber burning and the gunfire, like all sorts of different smells, the heat, diesel, diesel fuel. the diesel fuel, the heat, um, uh, the, the cold at times, you know, the, the, the ways that these were places where people ate their meals, all of these ways that they became almost like a little home for the, for the, for the, the people in the tanks. It was really a real, to me, that was really one of the great strengths of it. Uh, and I also think he did a really good job drawing out uh, sort of the, the narrative aspects about the way that uh, soldiers romanticize their tanks. Absolutely. Um, there's like little poems written to them. There's stories about them. They create an identity for the tank. And so the tank really becomes another part of that unit. Uh, and he, he really is uh, very capable of drawing that story out and presenting it not just as part of the you know, uh, endless effort in the Soviets' uh, World War II experience of, of reclaiming and ultimately being successful, but makes it a really personal, immediate experience about interacting with something that's really, really very physical and very specific at that point in time. The last last section, preserving things, I thought was was fascinating. One was on these, you know, one of the earliest maps of Siberia. Uh, so this chapter is from Erica Moynihan, who's been working actually for a little while now on uh, the history of uh, map making uh, and map production in Russia and thinking about the types of information that's in it. Uh, and in this chapter specifically, she really takes two pieces. Uh, she's focused on this very early cartographer living in Siberia who's working for the Russian government. Uh, he produces a couple different things over the course of his career, and one of which is this specific text. It's it's the earliest atlas that exists of Siberia. It's this collection he he did. Uh, Remazov went off and did field work. He traveled around the countryside. He noted where things were and he recorded as much as possible. Uh, and so Erica uh, simultaneously sort of tells two stories. One is about the atlas itself as an item, about how it was created, what went into it, and then how over time it left Russia under mysterious circumstances and ended up ending in the collection at Harvard. Uh, through the mechanism of an uh, early 20th century cartographer who somehow acquired um, the item itself. There's a little bit of espionage behind the story about whether it did or did not appropriately leave the country, which she talks about. Um, and then she also takes a, a sort of step into the text and really focuses on one particular map to talk about the types of information that are packed in, about how much value uh, and significance is in that set of images um, and one of the things that uh, pops up throughout the chapters, I think, is this idea that there's thick things, that items accumulate meaning, um, that there's different layers that we can look at about the sorts of ways. And so the book itself is one type of item, and then the map inside it is another item that has different pieces of information for us to, to access. Um, and we don't really have other visual representations from Russians being produced in the 17th century, so it's really unique 
on multiple fronts, even without the espionage side of the story. I skipped to maybe what the last chapter, Kunt Schultz in the War of Annihilation: The Power of Images Against Ideology by, I will mispronounce. Uh, do you want to take over the pronunciation of the last name? Uh, Ulrika Schmiegelt uh, Rettung. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's, so this was another really um, interesting piece, both from the moment it began and then as it developed in the course of uh, sort of finding its way from our workshop into the final volume. Uh, so Ulrika is a, an art historian uh, based in Germany, uh, right now based uh, just outside Berlin, who has done a lot of work recently in repatriating items that were taken from Ger- like from mostly the former Soviet Union uh, to Germany. Uh, and that's one of the things that she's done quite a bit of research into um, in the recent past. So this sort of comes out of some of her work there. Um, and this particular chapter sort of began as a real effort to look into all of the different ways that this sort of effort to play around, not play around with, but to investigate art in Russia, uh, what was seen uh, by the Nazis as something that was worthy of protecting and perhaps bringing back to Germany, what wasn't, um, you know, there was an idea that initially there was a lot of interest in Western art that had made its way into Russia, whereas Russian art itself was not seen as something that was as worthy of preservation. Uh, and one of the things that really, I have this vivid memory of being at the, the workshop that we did, and there's, there was a, there's a single quote or a, a, a bit of a quote from a diary of one of the art historians who was part of this process, talking about being sort of shaken to his core by the icons in Novgorod. And it was such a start, like just an unexpected moment of sort of humanity um, in the middle of this really rather terrible story that does involve quite a bit of death and destruction, maybe not so much death, but a lot of destruction at least. Um, and everybody in the group said, this is the most amazing part of the story. Can you please develop this more? And so that's actually one of the things that led to the final version that really looked into both this sort of larger process of these um, multiple different sort of art organizations, sort of one with like the Luftwaffe, one with the army, like there were multiple different groups sort of sent in to try to figure out what was going on with the world of art and to, to um, extract things of cultural significance um, for the Reich, essentially, um, as they were, at least in this one figure, themselves sort of altered by the material world in which they found them. So for us, it was such an interesting and sort of perfect last chapter to have, uh, sort of especially because the items that were so moving were these ones from the earliest days of Rus, um, these sort of early Novgorod icons, which if you've ever been to see them are really astonishing and are quite moving uh, when you get a chance to see them. Uh, just a, a fascinating, as you say, uh, end end piece for the book. So a- after these various contributions came together, you you put them in order. And what what would be your takeaway to to readers about this uh, exercise in in uh, disparate elements of of Russian material culture? Uh, I hope that uh, readers actually take away that there's not one story to tell. Is still um, what I tried to. I think we tried to emphasize in the whole volume: material culture, thinking about things, the substance of life, uh, is multiple narratives around us all the time. Um, and I think as historians, art historians, literary scholars, we had this opportunity to highlight different sorts of stories than people might expect. Some people maybe the topics they did expect, like the tank, but told in a way that's unusual. Uh, or highlighting items that they've never heard of before, I think is just an attempt to get us to grapple with 
the complexity of the past, that there's a, there's so many different things happening, so many different experiences. Uh, there's just multiple ways we can think about what history means and capturing as many of those moments as we can, I think is really productive. Uh, I just, for me, this is a book that I'm excited to bring to my students to get them to understand there's not one way to write history. There's not one story we can tell. All of these things add to our understanding about what it means to be human and have these experiences. Absolutely. And I think I would say that, you know, it really does. And some of this, you know, if we had ended up including slightly different things, we'd probably come to slightly different sort of final conclusions. We don't have a conclusion to the volume, although I think in our introduction, we really did try to pull through uh, or pull out some of the themes that were just present as we read through everything. Uh, And there's no one single theme that encompasses everything. Matt's absolutely right that thinking about material culture is almost like it's almost a method of doing history is simply sort of changing your gaze to look at something that's a little bit different. That's not just, not just people, uh, not that people aren't important, but, you know, but that is looking at other elements of the past that were ever present, you know, and that were part of the ways that people experienced the past and not even just everyday life. But, you know, that's one of the things that I think is great about having Brendan's article in there is that material culture also really opens up our view of kinds of history that are seen as maybe a bit more traditional, like your military history or something like that. But thinking about these things really does bring all sorts of new ideas. The one other thing that I think I'd say is that I think there is a bit of a theme that runs through a bunch of things that's a bit against the sort of um, the narrative of Russian backwardness um, and the idea that Russia is always backward in everything, which is something that you see in an awful lot of writing about Russia. Some of the art, some of the chapters really push that idea um, aside very forcefully. You know, Kate Pickering Antonova's book on textiles in. Um, I want to say in uh, Vladimir province is, I think, a a really great example of that um, and sort of suggesting that, well, you actually have to know textiles in order to see that actually, no, it's not backward in the way that it tends to be written about. Um, Or Claire Griffith's piece on apothecary wear, sort of talking about ways in which Russian medicine isn't backward. It just may be slightly different or just we have to take it on the grounds of what it was. And I think there's a lot of grappling with the actual material past that it makes it I'm not sure if it's easier to grapple with things as they were, as opposed to things, things as we think they ought to have been, but it really forces you to think about things as they were in a way that I think is uh, incredibly productive for adding to our understanding of the past, not just in Russia, but anywhere. The book is uh, The Life Cycle of Russian Things from Fish Guts to Fabergé, 1600 to the Present, edited by Matt Romanella, uh, Allison K. Smith, and Tricia Starks. Matt and Allison, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you for uh, having us today.